I forgot to sort my notes, and so I, I've never preached a sermon backwards, but I don't think it would go well. Uh, but I just want to say hi to um, all of you that are joining us online, and uh, so get your Bibles open. We're in Acts chapter 1, and uh, we're, we're talking about generosity, but it took me in an interesting um, direction this weekend. I was reflecting on the past, um, the years since we started this place. You know, when we launched Cornerstone, uh, in those first um, months of this infant congregation, uh, we often found ourselves discussing what do we want to be? Because when you start a church and you go to all that effort, you really can shape it, at least for a while, and then it kind of uh, solidifies, and then, and then uh, uh, it's like raising kids, you know, the first few years, and then it's just a crapshoot after that. You know that. But anyway... Um, so we're like, well, what do we want to be like? And what was crazy is, you know, we had come from different churches. Some of us had come from churches that really disappointed us, so we could tell you what we didn't want the church to be. Others came from great places. They said, I want our church to be like my old church. And, uh, and, and then there was this one person that more than once said, you guys, we're just going to be a New Testament church. And that was always what they said. We're going to be a New Testament church. So I thought, well... I'm not even sure what that is. So we, I said, why don't we open our Bibles? And why don't we search through the New Testament and find that, that one New Testament church, that template church that could be our model. And um, so we did. We went all the way through and we studied all the churches that are in the New Testament. And we found something uh, that I think is, it was, for us it was, it was kind of a new thought. And that is there is no New Testament church. Um, there was a bunch of believers that gathered locally in a bunch of different locations all over the Roman Empire, and their churches were really different from each other. Uh, there, were, there was a way to do church in different locations that actually had a lot to do with the local uh, location. For example, Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church, awesome church, but Jerusalem is 98% Jewish, so you're not dealing with, uh, you're dealing with a bunch of people who are coming out of what we call the Old Testament now, and that was their scripture, and then you had all these people that had walked with, a lot of them, the founders had walked with Jesus, and then you had um, all these people who had been looking for a Messiah, they found their Messiah, so that was a lot of the talk in, in Jerusalem, but you get up to Antioch, 500 miles north, Antioch, the city is not Jewish at all. It's 98% not Jewish. And so consequently, what's, what's going to work uh, in, in, in ministry in, in Jerusalem isn't even going to work in Antioch. Um, Jerusalem is led by people who are were personally recruited by the Jewish Messiah. And in, in Antioch, no one even knows what the word Messiah means. And, uh, and it was like that all over the world. You know, in, in Berea, you've got these people that are honed in and on 100% correct biblical interpretation. But then in Rome, you have people, what's a Bible? And, but the thing in Rome is you have uh, very wealthy people sitting right next to um, uh, slaves. And your community group leader may be a slave. And then you have sneaking in the back, uh, you have members of Caesar's household that were becoming part of the church. So the challenges in, in different churches are, are different. In some churches... They decided not to eat meat that had been offered to idols. And that was a big deal back then among the Christians. Do we eat meat that the butcher took over to the idol first and said, hey, you want some? And of course, the idols are never hungry, so you take it all back. But it was part of a religious ritual uh, that took place where you offer food to the gods. But the Christians were like, well, then that means now that meat has been tainted and has been offered and worshiped to an idol. We shouldn't be eating it. And there were Christian whole fellowships where they, they said, we don't do that. But then you go to Corinth, and I guess the barbecues in Corinth were off the chart. And these people were Epicureans. They loved to party. They ate the, they ate the best of everything. And meat offered to idols, who cares? So it's the Apostle Paul who really lays it out there. And he's the guy who started most of these churches. And, 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 and Paul uh, writes in such a way that says, Local churches should have a local flair. You can't just love Jesus and love the Bible and then move somewhere else and say, this is how we did it there, so we're gonna do it this way here. You have to also love your local 
community, and you have to ask yourself, who are these people, and what would draw them in? Or maybe more importantly, who are these people, and what's keeping them away? Is there anything about what we're doing that we could change in order to be a more magnetic congregation? And are we holding on to things that we don't have to? Paul said it like this, when I'm with Jewish people, I'm Jewish. He says, I am Jewish. But when I hang out with Gentile people, I act like them, and I know how to act like them. He said, even when I'm with weak people, I lean into my own weaknesses and admit them so that I could win people over uh, to Christ. I try to find common ground with everyone, uh, doing everything I can to save some. Uh, I do whatever I, I have to do in order to spread uh, the good news. So when we cornerstoners would read passages like this as a baby church, it challenged us to adopt a flexible strategy uh, for an effective gospel message. And so over the last 25 years, we've experimented from time to time and customized ministry. And then even as society has changed, we've asked ourselves, how much can we change about who we are so that society isn't repulsed by what we're teaching, but also how much can we not change about what we're teaching uh, so that we're not, we haven't gone outside of those biblical um, guardrails. So we've, we've constantly searched the New Testament for role models. And what we found also in the New Testament is that there's some negative role models that we can learn from. Uh, there's uh, several churches, seven to be exact, listed in the second and third chapters of Revelation where Jesus calls out certain local churches. And he wants us, he's confronting them, but it's given to us to read, uh, like the church in, at Ephesus, who had once been such a strong church, but according to Jesus, uh, he said, yeah, you once have something beautiful there, but you've, you lost it now. Here's what he says, I've seen your hard work, I've seen your patient endurance, I know you don't tolerate evil people. Uh, you've even exposed false teachers in your own congregation who lied to you, you've been... Uh, patiently suffering for me without quitting. That's all great, Jesus says, but I have this one thing against you. You guys have lost your first love, he says to Ephesus. And then he doesn't even explain to them what he means by that. It's as if they'll know, but what's he saying to them? You gotta go back to your roots and say, whoever or or whatever we were loving and loving to do and that we've, we don't do anymore or whatever, whatever feeling we either had for this community or whatever feelings we have for the Lord that somehow we've lost, we've got to get uh, back to that. And so here at Cornerstone, for the last 25 years, when we come across a passage like that, we do our own soul searching and say, have we lost anything that we used to have that was awesome that we ought to get back to that Jesus would say, yeah, that was, that was what... What got you here? Another warning from Christ comes when he speaks to the church at, at, at Pergamum where Christ complimented them for their perseverance and faithfulness. And the church at Pergamum, they had one of their own leaders martyred right in front of them. And yet they remained faithful. And Jesus compliments them for that. But then he chastises them for allowing competing and sinful doctrines to thrive in their fellowship. He says it like this, you tolerate false teaching at Pergamos, and this confuses your congregation, uh, causing some of them to fall into sin, and they don't even know it because they think it's approved of thoughts and behaviors. So we took this warning to heart years ago and said, on every campus, no matter how much we grow, there mu we must stay true to Scripture. There's got to be clear biblical teaching on every campus, even to the point of us vetting the songs we sing to make sure that they are doctrinally uh, correct. Because in our effort to be all things to all people, we have to be diligent to, to preserve the essential doctrines of the Christian faith, especially as the Bay Area becomes more and more biblically illiterate. Extremely important. But to me, the most ominous warnings Christ gave is what he says to Laodicea and what he says to Sardis. Christ told the Laodicean church that they had cooled to room temperature. Um, I wish, Jesus says, that you were either hot or, or cold. Your lukewarm faith sickens me, Jesus says. You never want to have God say that to you, by the way. You make me want to throw up. You, God, you don't want God talking to you that way. 
The church of Sardis was like that too. They had once been alive and hot and, and they thought they still were, but Jesus says, no, Sardis, you're not. You're dead. You once were alive, but now you're dead. And the sad thing is, you don't even know it. They were living on past success. And I, don't, I, I just think churches have to be very careful not to live on past success. I mean, it's great to, to, to think about the memories of what we've done, but that was then. It's like, what are we doing now? And how are we cultivating uh, the ministry within our church? A, a healthy church is like a vineyard that has to be cultivated 12 months out of the year. Uh, and the harvest is always in mind as we, we're out there and we're pruning and we're, we're, we're weeding and we're, 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 we're feeding and, and, and we're doing things to protect the vineyard from, from predators, little insects, bigger animals. The, the harvest is what we're after. So we have got to remain, we have to keep the vineyard vibrant. We have to remain alive, always returning to those basics and staying faithful uh, to Scripture. So fortunately, along with the negative examples, there's way more positive examples of healthy local churches. Uh, the book of Acts, along with Paul's 14 letters, offer us a plethora of New Testament models for, for 21st century ministry. And I have my favorite uh, New Testament churches, and I want to talk to you about a couple of them today. Start with Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, the Jer Jerusalem megachurch is born. Uh, even before Christ's ascension, this Bible study is about 120, 125 people. Um, and Jesus ascends to heaven. And before he leaves, he says, now I got this great mission for you. Before I, but before you try to accomplish what I'm going to have you accomplish, I want you to go and wait on the Holy Spirit. I want you to go back to Jerusalem and just hang out together and wait. And you're not going to be able to do what I'm going to tell you to do in your own strength. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And then after that, you will be my, my witnesses. And so they obeyed the words of Christ. He left. And they all went back to Jerusalem, the men and women that were leading that church. And they just hung out together for days. They studied the Bible. They, they kind of reinterpreted what they knew about the Bible, which was a lot, uh, based on what they had experienced in Christ. And then on the Jewish day of Pentecost, which is a Jewish holiday where the city is packed, the Holy Spirit shows up and does exactly what Jesus said the Holy Spirit was going to do. The Holy Spirit baptizes them with fearlessness and with the ability to preach to people in their own languages. And so the, the, the church spills out onto the street, um, praising God in all these different languages. And why all these different languages? Because it's a holiday weekend, and the holiday weekends, Jerusalem was packed with Jewish people from all over the world who didn't necessarily speak Aramaic as their first language. And so they're hearing their language spoken, which was a powerful miracle, and then what they're hearing preached uh, after they gathered is, hey, Jesus of Nazareth, that, that our leaders just killed is the Jewish, is the Messiah and the Savior of the world. And he, he, they killed him on a Friday. He came back on a Sunday, and now he has ascended to heaven, and his Holy Spirit has now fallen upon us, and you are all welcome to join us. And then Luke tells us that uh, on that day, 3,000 people joined that Bible study of 125. So you can imagine, you know, 3,000 people in one day. So they had to get organized fast, and they did. And Acts 2.42 tells us the structure of this church. Um, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, sharing in meals, prayer. Um, and uh, there was this deep sense of awe that, 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 that permeated their gatherings, and the apostles performed uh, miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying their neighbors, thought they were the, this group was really cool. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. So the Jerusalem church, the first church, becomes a model for all churches to follow. And let's review. What were the elements of that church? There was a sense of awe and wonder about what God was doing among them. They centered around biblical instruction in these large public gatherings and in these smaller gatherings in homes. They ate meals together, sharing what we call communion or the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. 
um, the, the body and the blood of the Lord. There were a lot of uh, prayers offered, a lot of miracles happening. There was this an unbelievable spirit of generosity among them, and they had a positive local reputation and daily growth as the disciples were going out and preaching every day. And when we flip over to Acts chapter 4, we see a particular day when the disciples went out in the afternoon, time of prayer, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They're out to preach at the on the temple grounds, and they heal this guy that has been lame since birth. And you can read the story. It's a powerful story. But the healing draws a crowd, and then the crowd hears Peter deliver this message about Jesus, which gets he and John arrested and drugged before the Sanhedrin, which is the same group of guys that had arrested Christ and turned him over to the Romans. So it's a powerful group that confronts them and says, what are you doing? You know, and, and the disciples just say, hey, here's what we're doing. We're preaching about Jesus. You guys killed him. That wasn't a good idea. Uh, we are his representatives, and uh, he is, um, he's now the cornerstone of our faith. And they said, you got to quit talking like that. But, but you could see that the people in power they were afraid of the crowds that were right outside, but also they're just like, we don't know what to do about this. So they're going to regroup, uh, and they command them not to speak, but then the disciples were like, well, we have to. I mean, the, the church leadership had become fearless in Acts chapter 2, and they haven't changed by Acts chapter 4. Why would we not talk about this powerful um, Lord um, Jesus? And so then they release them, and they go back, and the church... They tell the church uh, what just happened. The church just cel is celebrating and worshiping God, going, this is great. You know, you, we used to be afraid of these guys, and now you're just confronting them with the gospel. You're fearless. And then it says, uh, um, after they prayed and worshiped and thanked God and asked him to continue to help them, it says the house that they were in was shaken like an earthquake, and the Holy Spirit fell again, and they all spoke uh, boldly, and, uh, and, and prophesied. So it wasn't just the leadership that was full of the Holy Spirit and the, able to say powerful things. Everyone was like that. And uh, verse 32, it says that everybody was in one heart and in one uh, mind, and, 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 and the way that the, 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 they proved it is that they shared everything. And this generosity is way over the top. I mean, they would sell their possessions. They were selling homes. And they were saying, hey, the church needs this money, and they would bring it to the apostles, and the apostles would distribute the, the, the money. And then there's this really cool phrase in there, right in the middle, right at the end of verse 33. It says, God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. And if that is not an amazing statement about a local church, that God's grace is just powerfully um, at work among us, thousands of them functioning as one body, one family with one set of goals, unified. And of course, we can learn so much from the Jerusalem church. And they are all the more impressive when you remember they didn't have any role models. They were the pioneer church. And so when the pioneer church sets the bar that high, uh, then there's going to be some good churches that follow. And that's what happened. Soon local churches were springing up. Um, all over uh, the Roman Empire, which brings me to talk about my second favorite uh, New Testament church, because 500 miles north, the Antioch Fellowship is born, when in verse 19, we see that there are people who have been scattered, uh, uh, and uh, in, they're going out now from Jerusalem. Persecution is scattering them. And so they're like, you know, we're, we're going to move. And so they move, and they go, but they're still only reaching out to Jewish people, Except this one group of guys, verse 20, these guys from Cyprus and Cyrene, these islands, they go to Antioch and they begin to speak to Gentiles also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And uh, so the church's Antioch now is not a Jewish congregation that's become Christian. They're a Gentile congregation that have become Christian in a very sinful city. Jerusalem is a very conservative place. Antioch's the opposite. And Antioch uh, is a very simple study, including even Antioch's main religion, which is the worship of Artemis and Apollo. And there was a huge temple at Daphne, which was five miles away, where everyone from Antioch went to worship. And the way you worship Apollo and the way you worship Artemis is with ritual prostitution. And so you pay an offering, and, 
And this priestess, so to speak, who's really just a prostitute. Um, you spend time with them. And uh, that's considered the way that you, uh, you procreate your religion. And it's a crazy way to mix sex and religion, but that's what they were doing in Antioch. And that's what these people had to be drawn away from into the worship of Christ in, um, in, in Christian um, services. But it says in verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And uh, so you got this large church and the Lord's hand is with them. And I love that phrase, the Lord's hand was with them. The Lord's hand was with them. God's blessing was on them. And I don't care what century you're in, you need the Lord's hand to be with you if you're gonna start a church, if you're gonna be a Christian family, if your business is going to be Christian in the way you run your business. You will need the Lord's hand in there. And you say, sometimes we see the Lord's hand as, oh, he's blessing everything I do. Oh, no, no, no. His hands are in there changing some things that you do. When you invite God into the middle of it, he takes you seriously. And you start to do things the world's way, and God says, no, no. And even in, in, in uh, I mean, you can start an organization, a benevolent organization. You can start a nonprofit. You can get a group of people together and have events. But if you want a church, if you want it to be a church, the Lord's hand has to be in there. And God has to be allowed to, to tinker with it. Or just totally... Because he, is, he has to be the center of this whole thing. And the early church, they kept calling Jesus their cornerstone. And they're quoting Jesus out of the Psalms, but they, also, they really bought into that. We're building upon who Jesus is and what he told us uh, to do. All right, so word of this amazing thing happened in Antioch gets down to Jerusalem. And so they feel like they need to check it out. And so they send Barnabas, verse 22, chapter 11, up to Antioch. They trust Barnabas' um, wisdom, judgment. And Barnabas comes up, and he's, you can see he doesn't come up telling the Antioch church that they have to be just like the Jerusalem church, because that's not going to fly. He's looking for something when he comes up to the Antioch church so that he can report back to the Jerusalem church. You know, this is cool, what's happening? And it says, when he arrived, he saw what the grace of God has done. That's a powerful statement. That would be like somebody visiting our church now instead of being part of the Bible study 25 years ago and saying, well, I wasn't around, but I can see what the grace of God has done here. And that's what you want is for people to see what the grace of God has done. He saw what the grace of God had done, and he was glad. And he just encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. That was his thing. Just remain true to the Lord with all your hearts. You're going to go do great. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So it's continuing to grow. Then Barnabas sends to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch, and for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. So the Antioch church becomes Barnabas and Saul's home church. Wouldn't that be cool? You go to, you go to church, and who's teaching today? Uh, Paul, heard of him? Paul, Saul, he's a good teacher. Yeah, he's been in Tarsus for 12 years studying his Bible, preparing for this. We're the first group that he's taught. He hasn't written one book of the Bible yet. We're his home church. And uh, so that's pretty cool. And then the, the other thing I see uh, right there at the end of verse 26, it says, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. And that's so cool, you know, um, they, before Antioch, they, they weren't called Christians, they were called followers of the way, or Jesus' disciples, but then the Antiochians, you know, Antiochians, I mean, there's a, that same suffix, suffix, is that a suffix? Doesn't sound right, anyway, the, when you put something on the end of a word, it means of the tribe of, <coughs> Christians. They're, they're of Christ, like Californians. <clears throat> but it wasn't a compliment. The, 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 the Antiochians were like, oh, here come the Christians, you know. But the Christians, they really liked that title, and so they just went with it, and they just said, yeah, you got it. Thank you. 
thank you. We didn't think to call ourselves that. And so that, that um, title, Christian, that moniker stuck, and you could go anywhere in the empire now, and people begin to hear what a Christian was. And uh, so you get, you get to um, um, Lyon, France, uh, in the great persecutions of the, the 200s A.D., and the, the followers of Christ there are called Christians. They were rounding up the Christians to that amphitheater that is still there at Lyon. If you go to France uh, and you're anywhere near there, you should go to the amphitheater. You should stand in the middle of that amphitheater where Christians were fed to the lions. And, uh, and there's a great story about one of those Christians, Sanctus is his name. And uh, that's his Christian name. It means holy or made holy. And uh, so the, he's down in the amphitheater. The crowd is up there. They're, they're taunting him, this just sick form of Roman in- entertainment. And uh, they want him to be afraid. You know, they, it's kind of like, hey, and they're taunting him. They're like, well, what's your real name? Because they knew his real name wasn't Sanctus. And he just, he didn't call out back, I'm Sanctus. He, he said, I'm a Christian. And they said, well, where are you from? What's your, what's your ethnicity? Christian, he said. Are you a slave or a free man? I'm a Christian. Are you loyal to the emperor? I'm a Christian. That was the only thing that he would say. And those were his final words. And that was his identity. His identity. On the day that he died was Christ. His identity was Christ. And I, I think so. we have a lot to learn there. You know, we're really into branding ourselves. We're really into even our, you know, we brand our own personal identity with our Facebook and our Instagram. And, you know, look at, here's who we are. This is my brand. This is my mark. This is the mark I'm making. Look how awesome I am. And it's like, I think it's probably overdone. I think even Christians ought to back away from that a bit and push Christ forward as our identity. Christ made the mark that we want to make. So all we have to do is join him uh, in that uh, regard. All right, a little bit more about Antioch. Uh, Chapter 11, verse 27. During this time, some prophets came down uh, uh, from Jerusalem, and there, uh, one of them named Agabus predicted a great famine that was going to hit the Roman Empire, and it did. And the Christians now this day have these prophets that were nailing it, and it was actually how some people came to Christ, because a, a Christian prophet would predict something that would happen, and they were like the Old Testament prophets. And Agabus was a very accurate Christian prophet from Jerusalem, and he predicted this famine, which hit, and it hit the hardest right around Jerusalem. And since now there's great persecution of Christians in Jerusalem, they're the ones that are last in line to get any food or water, and so they're dying. And Jerusalem is hurting the Jerusalem church, and the church in Antioch. Now, remember, the church in Jerusalem had never done anything for the church in Antioch, and they're from another country. But the church in Antioch was brokenhearted that these folks down in Jerusalem were hurting, so they, they all, they, a bunch of them sold their prized possessions, they got a bunch of money together, and they sent it to Jerusalem with Paul and, and, and Barnabas. So it's really cool because Jerusalem was the first church to sell stuff and to take care of their own, but Antioch is the first church to offer international aid to people that they've never met and probably never will meet. Back then, 500 miles distance, that's like 5,000 miles distance now. And um, they just said, well, those are, those are human beings. And so here comes the uh, international aid um, to them, and, uh, which is cool. And you, yeah, as I unpack this, you begin to see why these are Steve Madsen's favorite churches. Because if you know me, these are the, a lot of the elements that we have, we have weaved into the Cornerstone's DNA um, over the years. And, uh, or, and, and so a couple more things about Antioch. Skip to chapter 13, and you'll see in verse 1, the church in Antioch, the leadership were these guys, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean who'd been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And what, if you just read that really fast, you're like, oh, it's just a bunch of guys' names. But if you're reading back then, you go, oh, this is a multi-ethnic leadership. And you, you look again and you go, oh, these people are, it's telling you where they're from and what their skin color is even. And so you have the, 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 the Church of Jerusalem. It's all Jewish, which is fine, because that's Jerusalem. 
But you get to Antioch, your leadership has to be multi-ethnic because Antioch is multi-ethnic. And they make themselves such a great pattern for the church even today. You know, it was Dr. Martin Luther King that said that, that Sunday morning at 11 o'clock is still the most segregated time in America. And this is not acceptable for the gospel. The gospel is a multi-ethnic gospel, and it has to be led by groups of people that are from, uh, and, and you have to put people in leadership, and people on the stage, and people of different skin color, of different background. Uh, and even with English not being the first language of a lot of our leadership now. And we have to keep pressing in that direction. Why? Because that's what the East Bay looks like. That's what, we have to look like the East Bay. In order to reach the East Bay, we have to look like them and show respect to all these beautiful cultures that have made the Bay Area all that it is today. And the last thing I would say about the Antioch church is verse uh, 2 of chapter 13. Uh, the Holy Spirit says to them, set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work that they, I call them to. And they lay hands on Barnabas and Saul. And in chapter 13, they send them out on what we know as the first of Paul's uh, missionary journeys. Now, those of us who grew up in and around church know about Paul's missionary journeys, that he spent years going to all these other countries. But it was launched by a leadership at Antioch. If it wasn't for the leadership of Antioch, we wouldn't have Paul going to Philippi. We wouldn't have Paul going to Colossae. We wouldn't have Paul going to Rome. And these, these ministries were not only prayed over, and they were funded by the church of Antioch. And... Uh, so this is such a powerful thought to, to have this role model church be a sending church. So uh, Jerusalem and Antioch, two great local churches that Cornerstone can pattern themselves after. In future sermons, we'll talk about the church at Philippi, the church in the region called Colossae. The Ephesian church was actually a regional church uh, that, was, that had about 100 campuses uh, all in and around Ephesus with 100 preachers, uh, the church at, uh, oh my goodness, Thessalonica, uh, the church in Rome, but we don't have time to talk about those things today because I wanna talk about my favorite 21st century church because there's still some great churches that are, are out there. Then uh, my favorite 21st century church, you may have heard of it, Cornerstone Fellowship. <laughs> it's my favorite. And uh, I love this place, uh, I planted my flag here, I'm, to be honest, if you'd have told me 25 years ago that I'd still be here, uh, I would have said, yeah, I don't know about that. Uh, but now I feel so lucky, so blessed to still be here, and especially in the last five years or so where God has given us this multi-campus vision, a real, a doable strategy where you put a campus of Cornerstone in every school district. You put a campus of Cornerstone in every zip code, in every neighborhood. You put a campus of Cornerstone near the downtown of every East Bay City so that people can get to church. And then that campus doesn't just become a location where people come in, it becomes the training center whereby people go out into, you know, everywhere in the Bay Area, but a lot of them are just going out to their own neighborhoods, their own school district, their own and, and, and they're coaching their kids' little league. And, 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 and Christians, uh, uh, part of the Christ tribe, uh, can permeate and infect the East Bay with, uh, with, with, with Christianity. And that's a beautiful strategy where we don't compete with all the Bay Area has to offer you. We just become, we come, become part of what the Bay Area has to offer you. Offering especially the eastern portion of Contra Costa and Alameda counties, something that has been sorely missing, community centered on Jesus Christ himself, community centered on taking care of that local group of people. And, and, and weekend preaching with a, a uncompromised doctrine and services that are enjoyable to attend and where you can bring your kids, and, and even people who visit us say, I, I can't believe I'm dropping my child off with these people I don't even know, but it feels right, it feels safe. And I see what you guys have even done to protect my child, but also my kid comes home from that and they want to come back. And teenagers that want to come to church, uh, absolutely uh, wonderful. And then this church where one of our five core values is care, like we, as a value, we take care of each other. 
But then we also take care of people we, we've never met. And, and that becomes like our reputation in the community where people say, man, that church just, every time I turn around, I hear what Cornerstone has done. Um, they seem inexhaustible in their resources in, in caring uh, locally in this community. So what's interesting is we have some big goals, but our goals got really small once we started thinking about locations, zip codes, school districts, and uh, local communities that are within the greater part of the East Bay. And, uh, and our goals and our mission have gotten so big that I'm just wanting to remain healthy long enough to continue to be part of this longer because it's just fun to serve the East Bay and to not come in opposition to the East Bay uh, and to not be preaching against people, but to be preaching against sin and to be convincing people that thing you're doing there is not good for you. Let me show you a better way, but I want to show you to you in a way that's winsome and not combative. And you can come to our church no matter who you vote for. Uh, you can come to our church no matter what. And, and, and hopefully you'll feel, you'll feel welcome and you'll feel like you're part of us very soon. Hopefully you'll, you'll be in a community group very soon where you can get to know some of us. Having said that, this is a very expensive way to do ministry. It would be much cheaper to just build one location and have everybody come to that location and have them pay for the gas and have them pay for things. But we have found out that that doesn't really work. That people driving more than about, gee, 15 miles, and they're not gonna, you're not gonna get people to visit your church if they have to, they commute all week. They don't wanna commute to church. And I don't blame people. And so for us to say, hey, listen, we're gonna put a campus near your home, and that will be where you go to be part of Cornerstone, and that will be where you are trained, and that will be where you are sent, and your kid's middle, middle school teacher goes to this church, and you, you, you're gonna find the people that you're talking to during the week, they're gonna be there on the weekend, uh, and that is, that's expensive. But you know what, I, I turned a corner, I don't know when it was, what, I had several things happen, and one key conversation I had is, we were, we were, uh, we were uh, supporting these missionaries that were, were mission in, a, in, in they were they were in the mission field on the eastern coast of Africa, and you would think ministry in Africa would be cheap, but they came to us with their budget, and their budget looked like a Bay Area family's budget, and we're like, well, you guys are going to be living awfully rich over there. Why don't you you know cut your expenses? They're like, oh, we can't. It's as expensive to live there as it is here. I go, that's absolutely impossible. Why would that be possible? And they showed us what gas costs, what milk costs, what meat costs, what rent costs. What, and I'm like, how do people survive? Well, they, they go, exactly. That's why everybody's so poor. That there's only a few wealthy people that can live where we're going, but we're going to the poor, and so we actually need you to support us in that. And I go, why would I give you all this money? And they go, well, why wouldn't you? This is our mission. This is what God has called us to do. And people said, if we came and met with you, you would give us money. So give us money. I mean, they weren't apologetic at all. And we gave them money. Because their mission made sense, what they were going over there to do. And I, I remember walking out of that meeting and going, wait a minute. I keep apologizing to Cornerstone people that this mission is so expensive. I'm going to quit apologizing for it. This is our mission field. What, are so, what else are we to do? This is what God has called us to do. This is what it costs to reach people in the Bay Area. We actually know how to do it now, and God has given us a plan. All he has to do is give us the money. And then God said, guess what? You already have the money. And I'm all, really? Where is it? He goes, it's in their purses, in their wallets, in their bank accounts. <laughs> I'm like, all right. And then God just started giving me the boldness and the freedom to talk this way uh, to you to, to, to donate generously to your church because there's no greater place for you to donate to see a greater result. When you donate money, you're still responsible for the stewardship of that money. So if you give money to a nonprofit, you have to pay attention to what that nonprofit is doing. 
And so when you donate to your church, it's the same thing. We don't donate to our church because God said to do it. We donate to our church because that's the best way to, to change the fabric of the East Bay, to repair things about the Bay Area that are absolutely unacceptable to us and unacceptable to God. So we did something fun this week. Um, we ran around the Bay Area and... In some cases, we actually told people to even film themselves because we couldn't make it to where they were. So everybody grabbed their iPhones. And I just said, we didn't, we, the, what we said was, you, you're our partners. We've been very generous with your organization. Now, tell the people of our congregation how you feel about them. Tell them, do you think Cornerstone is, is, is on the right track helping your organization do what you do for the Bay Area? And here's what, here's what some of them said. Hi there, I'm Sue Bowers, and I'm one of the directors with Royal Family Kids Camp in Brentwood. Hi, this is Steve Toyama with Missing Man Ministry. Hello, I'm Tim Silva. I'm a teacher, and I'm head football coach at Granada High School. Hi, I'm Tyler Scott, lead pastor at CPC Danville. Hi, this is Vanessa Russell, founder and executive director of Love Never Fails. Hi, I'm Wendy Hagen, and I'm with Tina Steen. Hi, my name is Nicole Rallo. I'm a resource family recruiter with Children and Family Services. Hey, what's going on, Cornerstone? My name is Clint Dupin, lead pastor at Easttown Church in San Ramon. We just kicked off about four months ago. My name is Rebecca Hart. I'm the Foss Adopt Ministry Lead at Cornerstone in Brentwood. Hello, Cornerstone Fellowship. My name is Josh Jonas, and I'm with Aruka. My name is Nancy Orberg, and I work with an organization called Transforming the Bay with Christ. Cornerstone is helping us by providing both financial and volunteer resources to provide a birthday bash these children will never forget. Cornerstone has been a financial supporter of our charity for several years now, and with it, we've been able to affect the community, especially local widows and orphans. Some of these widows have started their own business with our help. Some have moved on to other locations and started new lives and some just needed some help with home repairs so they could sleep better at night. The last eight years, if you were to come to Granada High School on every other Friday, you would see between 100 and 200 high school students fill in the boys of the girls' gym, listening to the Word of God. And for everyone, every one of those FCA huddles, Cornerstone provided a dozen extra-large pizzas from Costco. And what I'll tell you in regards to that, and they didn't want for nothing, they just gave and didn't want anybody to know who was given the pizzas. First, I love the size of your vision. You were not satisfied with having just a huge church in the Tri-Valley area, but you had a vision to reach Brentwood and Walnut Creek and Hayward and even now Danville so that more people could come to know Jesus. I love that about you. Secondly, I appreciate your willingness to partner with other churches and nonprofits to serve our communities. In fact, just two weeks ago, we were able to be at Convoy of Hope with Cornerstone and other churches at the Alameda County Fairgrounds. I want to thank you, Cornerstone, for your support to our I Am House of Restoration. Because of your generosity, we have been able to house 91 women and 17 children escaping from a life of human trafficking. We are so thankful for Cornerstone's generosity because it allows us to continue the unique opportunity that we have to reach students in the public schools. We get to go into classes and engage with students and talk to them about the pressures they're facing, the realities that they have that we never faced as kids, from vaping to suicides to school shootings. There's so much going on. There's so much academic pressure, and we get to go provide a place for them to talk about it, to get tools, to navigate it, and educate them and empower them with a message of hope that they matter and that they have value that goes beyond anything that they do. We know that we are making a difference and we are saving lives. So thank you for helping us to do that. This past weekend, I had the pleasure of attending the Foster and Adopt meeting with Cornerstone Fellowship at Walnut Creek. I wanna give a huge thank you to Michael and Julie Irwin for putting the group together. It was really great to see our community partners come together for the advancement of our foster youth. And because of your generosity, we are seeing men move forward in life, uh, becoming better fathers, husbands, uh, employees, friends, and men in Christ. We spend most of our week, every week, traveling all around the Bay Area, helping to catalyze a holistic gospel movement in the Bay Area. And part of what we find are certain churches that have a magnetic pull to us to keep coming back to because of the extraordinary work that they're doing. And Cornerstone is at the top of that list. I think generosity may be one of the best signs 
of what it means to be spiritually healthy because it creates in us a surrender to God with our spirit, our resources, our time, our money. And Cornerstone for many years has been a beacon of generosity in the Livermore area and all the areas surrounding it. A couple of weeks ago, I came over to meet with Steve Madsen to try to get that man under control. Let me tell you, pray for me, it's not working. But when I was there in one of the rooms with two of your leaders, Nancy and Terry, there were 60 people gathered. Your church had brought in people from the junior college nearby. There were police officers there, nonprofit leaders, other churches. Looking at how together collectively you could link arms and show up as a collaborative force in the neighborhood around issues like homelessness and housing. And I know that foster care is another thing that you're looking at. Your generosity of spirit, of resources and time, is one of the truest indications of the gospel in the Livermore area, and we couldn't be more grateful. Go Cornerstone. We are eternally grateful. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Cornerstone, for all you do, and uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you. I just want you to know what a great church it is that we have here at Cornerstone. So overall, Cornerstone, we love you, and we pray for you often. God bless you. We can't thank you enough at Love Never Fails, and we send our blessings to you. I can't wait to see where your group goes from here. Thank you again. And I just want to take this opportunity to say thank you. Thank you for all your encouragement and your support. I also want to say thank you to Steve and your leadership and the encouragement that you have been to me personally. God bless you guys. Cornerstone, thank you. You are helping us to reach the students of this valley and saving lives. That's what you're doing. And that's why I don't apologize when I say give to your church because what you're giving is changing lives now and we've just started. We, we, we've got so many things ahead of us, things that we can, we can accomplish that we're going to fund with your generous gifts. So for those of you that have just started attending Cornerstone and you haven't started donating yet, that changes today. We need you to start giving. And we need to start giving uh, faithfully. For those of you that come and when you come, you put something in the offering, we need you to start giving more regularly and start giving uh, online so that you don't have to remember, oh yeah, did I give some money to the church this month? It just automatically, you, you've made a decision, an intelligent decision, not an emotional one, not where somebody twisted your arm, but you just said, hey, part of my monthly budget is I give to my church. And this is the amount. And for those of you that are already doing that and you've been doing that for years, uh, well, today was a big thank you to you. But it's a challenge for you to look at it and say, hey, when I selected that amount to give monthly, has God blessed me more since then? Is it time for me to increase what I give on a regular basis to our church? Whoever you are, I ask you, give to this church. You won't regret it, and we will be good stewards of, what, of, of how you gave that money. And that's it. That's the end of a three-weekend series on generosity. Not only did you survive it, you clapped a couple times. So uh, next weekend, we open a new series called The Making of a Leader. And we're going to go back to the Old Testament. Love the Old Testament. And we're going to study the lives of Esther, Mordecai, Ezra, and Nehemiah. These leaders who led up, they, they were in the minority culture, they were, they were in a group that was persecuted, and yet somehow Esther becomes the queen of Persia, which is controlling 127 nations. Her cousin Mordecai becomes the second most powerful person in the empire. Later, Ezra leads a group of people back from Persia to start rebuilding Jerusalem, and Nehemiah kicks in and rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, all of these things were done by people who were living in an area where their religion, even their ethnicity, was looked down upon. How do they do that? We're gonna spend the summer training ourselves as leaders so we can go out into the Bay Area and stop saying, well, there's no Christians at my job, so I can't do anything. There's there no Christians in my kid's school. Well, there are because you're there and you are going to lead up and we're gonna work on that all summer. So it's gonna be exciting, but I've talked enough and it's been a great series. I'm gonna ask our campus pastor from Livermore, Steve, uh, Steve, uh, come and, and, and wrap us up. Just out of curiosity, how does this sit with you? Um, yeah, uh, 
it sits really well. <laughs> you had to say that, yeah, but I mean, you know. Because I'm standing with you on the stage. I know, exactly. And uh, <laughs> no, it's, I'm so excited. I just got an email last week from someone who emailed our kids team and said, hey, the changes that you've made in the fourth, fifth room, um, the painting and all, all the ways you've shifted it. Um, my kid, my 11-year-old kid is so excited to go to church. And now he's got my nine-year-old kid that's excited to go to church because he's excited. And so, like, just the little things that your generosity go goes toward, like paint, it makes a difference in these kids' lives, and I think a lot of you know how passionate I am about the next generation of the church and, and our, our young people and also just, just the Tri-Valley as a whole. Like, there's a lot of people who are ready for Jesus to do some incredible work in their life. So, Well, you know, after last weekend, you know, I always wake up Monday morning and go, oh, no, they're not coming back. Uh, <laughs> and I was out getting coffee, and I ran into this, this uh, woman I, I never met before. Pastor Steve, she said, my husband was there last weekend. And she said, he's that guy that, uh, that says, you know, oh, the church is just out to get your money. You can't trust him, whatever. And she said, at the end of the service, he has his phone out, and he's donating money <laughs> to Cornerstone. And I, and I said, what happened? She goes, I, he, he trusts you. Hmm. And she said, that was so special to me that he trusts, he trusts our church. And I think, I don't know, maybe... Well, I, I, when you say that, I just think um, not only does that, that individual trust our church, but he trusts God. And that's so big that Cornerstone's led the way that you've led the way in that as a church for the last 25 years that we trust God with our resources and God does some incredible things with it. So. Yeah. Well, Steve, yeah. pray for us. Yeah, let me pray. Let me pray a blessing over all of us today. Um, as I pray, if you want to do this with me, um, this is one of my favorite prayer postures to hold my hands open. It says to God, I'm, I'm ready to receive whatever you have for me. But it also says I am surrendered and I'm not holding my life with this grip, but God, it's, it's yours. So if you want to sit there with your hands open while I pray a blessing over you, I encourage you to do that. May God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you. May you be encouraged by the generosity of the lives around you. May you be encouraged by the generosity that flows from your own life. May you be confident and courageous that God has positioned you right now in the East Bay to do his work that he has, that he has equipped you for. that you would do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine according to God's power that's at work within us. Not for our glory, but for his. Father, we are surrendered to you. Everything we have and everything we are is yours. We love you. I bless you today in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, guys, this is a, it's a great week, great weekend. I hope you have a fantastic Memorial Day. If you need prayer, our prayer team will be up here. If you're new, come hang out with us in the coffee shop. Otherwise, have a fantastic week. We love you. See you next time.